Hey everybody, it's Bowen here, and this is part of a series of conversations that I began last year called Brothers and Teachers. If you like what you hear today, please do visit bowendwelly.substack.com, click the little heart to like this episode, and subscribe to get updated whenever I publish new writing or podcast episodes. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Adi Jaffe. Adi's the author of a best-selling book outlining a unique perspective on addiction called The Abstinence Myth, and a nationally recognized expert on mental health, addiction, relationships, and shame. He lectured in the UCLA psychology department for most of a decade and was the executive director and co-founder of one of the most progressive mental health treatment facilities in the country before starting his own company, which is called Ignited, through which Dr. Jaffe is changing the way people think about and deal with mental health issues. He's now working on his next book to be called Unhooked. Adi and I met through a men's group called Metal, which is best explained by their catchphrase, Together We're Better, which itself expresses a spirit of community and cooperation amongst men that also comes up in our interview. If you are a man and you're not yet familiar with the world of men's work and you'd like more community, connection, and emotional depth in your life, I highly recommend finding a men's group to participate in. Just a quick note here to thank one of my supporters in particular. I've been mostly a vegetarian for many years, but I've been feeling to eat more fish lately in particular. And it turns out that my friend Tom Gore has a salmon fishing business and he sells direct. So if you like salmon, consider getting it from my buddy at tomswildalaskan.com. I'll put a link in the show notes, of course. He's a good friend. He's a great guy. It's great fish. And he also happens to be a reader and a supporter. So thanks, Tom. Speaking of paid subscribers, thanks to Sean, my old buddy Gio, and my brother Roddy, who've all come on board just in the last couple of weeks. Your support is hugely important to me, along with all of my other subscribers here, as well as my fellow members of the Substack community. I appreciate you all so much. And just to say, as those of you who have felt to inquire know quite well, my door is open. So if there's anything that you'd like to talk about, feel free to reach out and know that I will reply to all messages that I receive. So just ask. If you do enjoy this episode, please do take a moment to click the little heart button to like this post here on Substack. Your click on that little heart is the answer to the question. If somebody asked you about it, would you recommend this piece to a friend? It's also just kind of fair play for the work that I do in producing this writing and podcast. All right, we're just about to get started. As you listen, you might scan the questions at the bottom of the show notes, or just consider this one, which is, what is your own understanding of how abstinence relates to addiction and recovery? And is absolute abstinence an absolute requirement for recovery from addiction? And if so, why? Well, Adi, welcome to Brothers and Teachers, my friend. 
the mission of this podcast is to spend time with men and with teachers that I wish I'd had the opportunity mm. to spend more time with when I was younger and to have some of the conversations that are missing in so many people's lives. And not that it'll be the only topic that we'll touch on today, I'm sure, but addiction is certainly one of those subjects that was just never spoken about along with drug use, alcohol use, and all those things ended up becoming a pretty big part of my life and a big focus of my own writing at this point. So thank you for being here. Looking forward to talking to you. And so I appreciate you taking the time here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to take the time. So your book, The Abstinence Myth, I mean, that title just really hit me right off the bat. And I guess I'll share with you a short version of my story, which is that uh, I grew up here in San Francisco and I began drinking and using all sorts of drugs at about the age of 10. And I stopped drinking about five years ago at the age of 48. The thing is, is that I never had like a crash and burn catastrophe. In fact, my experience was that it was pretty moderate all along in many ways. I certainly never went to the depths that many of my friends did growing up here. It was pretty wild in high mm. school in the 80s and afterwards. Uh, drugs were everywhere. And I mean, in particular, speed and heroin. In addition, that is to the standard kind of recreational psychedelics, cannabis, and alcohol. A lot of my friends were shooting heroin, and we were all using a lot of speed, mostly snorting it and smoking. How old were you at the time? 15, 16, 17. Wow. Yeah. Got it. Started early. Yeah. Um, and, but then I stopped pretty much using drugs and just became a regular sort of business traveling, mm. entrepreneurial drinker. And you didn't think all that much of it, except for the fact that I was increasingly depressed in my late 20s and then into my 30s. I eventually made a connection for myself. At a certain point, it became clear that alcohol was kind of the last thing holding me down. And so at that point, I just stopped. I just stopped drinking. I just decided, well, this doesn't really fit for me anymore. Throughout that whole time, you did not identify with the concept of addiction. I certainly didn't identify with old school, 12-step, AA kind of mentality. Did anybody else in your life ever direct you or push you in that direction, given everything that was happening? No, never. There's a lot more to that story. It was kind of like no in several different ways. Mm. Um, but the whole concept of addiction to me was mostly just foreign, but it was also this idea of like, well, there are some people that get addicted. And obviously I wasn't one of them because I had escaped going where a lot of my friends did. Um, mm. And, and so I didn't give it all that much thought Yeah, until I really had gained a different perspective myself mm. by way of a kind of other avenues. Yeah. Well, so that's a little bit of my history. I know a little bit of yours just from listening to some other interviews and that sort of thing and reading your book, of course. But I would love to start really just with this question of if you're just talking to somebody, how do you explain what addiction is? Mm. That's interesting because the answer to that question really changes about whether 
we're having kind of like a colloquial conversation or we're having a really clinical conversation. And what I mean by that is addiction broadly for me is anytime we engage in habits that are bringing us harm of some sort. Yeah. And we're having a hard time stopping them or slowing them down. So in that sense, somebody can be addicted to working out or addicted to working too much or addicted to social media and those kinds of things. But mm -hmm. the threshold for damage is pretty low when I'm talking about that, right? Because mm -hmm. the damage could be it's just keeping you away from connecting with your family. Right. Keeping you from other things. Yeah. Yeah. That you would like to engage in, but you're, you're not finding time because this is crowding things out. When we have the mm -hmm. clinical conversation, we have real life consequences, right? So people being prevented from functioning mm -hmm. in their everyday life due to these things. And the reason I want to set things apart is actually broadening my definition a little bit. I'm working mm -hmm. on a new book called Unhooked. And the reason it's called Unhooked is because everybody talks about, I'm hooked on this, I'm hooked on that, right? Oh my God, I'm hooked on this Air One soup. Or, I'm hooked on this new Netflix show. And for a long time, I had a lot of resistance to that mm. um, because I was so focused on the clinical part of addiction. But here's the problem, right? Based on the new definition from SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration that keeps track of mental health treatment and needs, they just moved up from about 24 million people who struggle with addiction to the new definition includes about 40 million people. So there are 40 million people, about 10% of the population or so, who struggle with addiction. Mm -hmm. But it's probably 70 to 100 million people who struggle with the broader version of what we're talking about, right? So yeah. watching too much porn, working too much, surfing social media overly and, and not being able to control it in a way that actually alters their behavior. So in the new book, part of what I tell people is, look, you're not really hooked on social media. You're escaping something else. It's not porn alone that has you hooked. There's something wrong in your relationship and your ability to pursue intimacy. And I do want to broaden the conversation because here's the thing. Nobody talked to me about addiction till I was using meth all day, every day. Yeah. Right. And I think it's a problem sometimes that we wait to cross this magical threshold because then there's a false dichotomy that gets created between normal people and quote unquote addicts and alcoholics. Yeah. And I think that is a false notion that there are two different groups of people. I think what happens is people move from quote unquote normal, whatever that is. I'm sort of pissed that Gabor Mate just did his new book, The Myth of Normal, because I've been talking about it with my clients forever. But you yeah. move away from the average, which is really what normal is, right? It's just the average. Um, we move away from that. And then somehow we cross this magical threshold and all of a sudden we become a different person. But that's not actually true. Exactly. Well, here's the thing about normal. This is kind of a cognitive misdirection that we have with the concept of normal. It's average. Nobody is the average. Nobody's the average. It's a statistical myth. And I mean, actually, the variation within any normal is that's all the variation there is. It's that's it's individuality, full, right? That's exactly right. It's the full infinite range of variation. Yeah. It's even worse in my opinion, right? Because, and I don't know, I haven't read Gabor's book to be perfectly honest, but I should. And it's even worse because weirdly, while we all try to be as normal as possible, nobody wants to be normal. No, no. Yeah. What does that even mean? Like, yeah. I mean, if somebody had to draw like the average normal person, and then you walked around and asked, right. is this what you aspire to? The vast majority of people would say, 
No, not really. No, because we're all we have these idiosyncratic aspects to ourselves. And that's what makes us people like imagine Bowen for a second. If we got on this podcast and you and I had normal attitudes, normal dress code, normal taste in food, normal political leanings. Yeah, it doesn't exist. So freaking boring. Right. There would be nobody who would even want to listen to this conversation. Right. I mean, I never wanted to be normal. That's for sure. I wanted to be different. Right. Which I imagine you identify with as well. We want to be different, but accepted different, but part of something. Right. The collective is the word these days, part of the community, not ostracized, not left out. So I think in a way, it's kind of what we mean by normal is like included, invited. So, yes, included and invited. But the other piece is understood. Right. We want to be understood. We want to feel appreciated. And I think that's where falling within the normal range, it feels safe for a lot of us. Hmm. But I'll tell you, I've worked with thousands and thousands and thousands of people by this point. Hmm. You can get suffocated by that desire to be accepted over and over and over. Because so many people that I work with, part of the reason they develop their addiction struggles is actually because they felt so abnormal, but felt like they had to temper that down. They Hmm. had to control it. They had to squash their individuality so much I was just talking to one of my favorite clients on our group earlier today. And she said, I felt like I was just too much. Like I had too many emotions. I cared too much. And so I smoked weed so that I could turn it all down. Right. That was mm-hmm. her description of trying to become normal, I not see, because yeah, she sure. wanted to, mm-hmm. but because she felt like her true personality would be too much for people. Too much. Yeah, it's interesting. I hear that. Just to jump in here for a second, because we didn't have a chance to cover it. In the live conversation, I think what Adi is getting at here is very important in that our narrow cultural definition of so-called normal leaves a lot of people feeling that they have to narrow or tamp down their behavior to fit in, which is a huge shame, whether we're talking about so-called ADHD and young people who can't sit still in school all day and, you know, who can, or all sorts of other neurodivergences that freak out the normies in the supermarket checkout line. Now we'll go back to the live conversation. And just going back to where we started with like, what is addiction? Of course, there are many ways to talk about it. And I agree with your informal definition. What I tell people in along those lines myself is like, well, if you find yourself doing something that you don't really want to be doing that you kind of think you like, or you used to like, but you don't actually like anymore or that you, that you don't really want to be doing. Um, and then at a deeper level from a societal and cultural point of view, to your point, we're all susceptible. We all have this mechanism within us and the way that our culture works these days, we're all primed to get hooked because we're all hungry for something that we're not getting. So just to kind of follow through on this hooked concept, here's what I tell people. We do get hooked, but it's not the drugs or the porn that has us hooked. Yeah, It's It's these feelings and fears and traumatic experiences and pain points from our childhood or earlier on in our lives. Those are the things that have us hooked. And when, and if you can literally imagine like a fishing hook embedded in you, when they get tugged on, it causes us pain. And the medication is actually just medicine for that pain. And that's what I try to get people to understand all the time is, yeah, 
there there are hooks and you are hooked. You just got to go fix that yeah. original sin of sorts that you got embedded with earlier on in life. And I've I've found this over and over and over, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Yeah. If you go after that in a real way, magically the addictions disappear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, totally. And that is essentially what happened with me. It's not the substance that's the hook. It's some trauma or previous experience or lack or desire. And what really hit me about your book, The Abstinence Myth, is that for me, the corollary is that, well, the substance isn't the hook, then abstinence itself isn't the solution. You got to go beneath it. Exactly. And this is, yeah. look, I called my initial book, The Abstinence Myth on purpose. I just wanted to piss some people off, to be honest. Yeah. But that's, that was one thing. But the other piece was this. A lot of people aren't willing to go get help for their addiction issues because they're not ready to quit. Right, right. Most people in my industry look at that as a problem for the client. Yeah. I think it's dumb to blame the person struggling for being unwilling to get help. Because if you're really a helper, then it's my job to try to figure out how to help you. Not to say, look, I'll help you, but you got to like swim to Australia and then (laughs) take a bus and then repel down this mountain. And when you get there, I'm all in. I'll be there for you. I think it's ridiculous. So I tell people, come as you are, make it my job and my staff's job to figure out what you need. And let's give you the help you want right now. I can't tell you the number of people we've started out helping who were not ready to quit at all. Mm -hmm. We're trying to moderate and either we're successful at moderating, and that's beautiful too, if they can, Mm -hmm. or tried to moderate for a while, figured out they can't do it, and then decided to quit on their own. Yeah. There's a false notion in the addiction space that people have to be ready to quit from the beginning. That's why I call it the abstinence myth. Right. It's just wrong. It's a myth. People can come in just because they had a bad night of drinking and they don't want to be hung over and you can still get them to a good outcome. And I think that's important for people to understand because I mentioned about 40 million people struggle with addiction in the country, only about two and a half million to 3 million get help every year. So that means yeah. 90, 95% of people with addiction issues don't get help. And I think this is one of the main problems that we run into. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, because in my own experience at some level it did come up for me from time to time where i thought it'd probably be better if i wasn't drinking so much or so often but the idea of just having to stop entirely did not compute for me at the age of 28 or 33 or 37 or 42 (laughs) um it actually didn't compute for me until I had changed many other things in my life and gotten much healthier to the point where it really didn't fit anymore. There just wasn't time. I didn't want to feel the lack of energy. Um, and finally just kind of almost went away by itself. I'll tell you one of the things that I learned in my search years and years and years ago, as I was researching addiction when I was Mm -hmm. in graduate school, this is one of the main points in the book because the abstinence myth is kind of the way to get you in. But one of the main points that I learned a long time ago from this woman that ran the entire public health system for Massachusetts, actually, at the time, it is actually wrong to try to stop yourself from doing anything. So stop trying to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. Instead, start trying to fill up your life with other things that you love, that are meaningful to you, that are motivating. And what will end up happening is gradually... As you, as long as you can keep doing that, those habits will crowd out the drinking. 
Now, I do want to say this because this comes up every once in a while. There are people where drinking is unsafe, right? You drink to levels where you're blacking out, you're driving, you're doing really irresponsible things, you get aggressive, sure. violent, etc. I'm not saying it's never true that somebody has to stop drinking. So people read the book and they think to themselves, or they see the title, and they think that I'm against abstinence. I'm not against abstinence. I'm against yeah. demanding abstinence as the first step in people's recovery process. I appreciate that. You essentially answered my next question, which is when you're talking about good habits displacing unhealthy habits, where we're not uh, condemning someone to a diagnosis of alcoholism and demanding that they quit cold turkey forever as the first step in making a change in their lives. Where does someone start? Like myself, for example, if I had come to you 15 years ago and said, I'd like to drink less. I haven't been to jail. I haven't crashed the car. I don't have a DUI. Uh, no catastrophes here. But I do sometimes get the feeling it would be good <laughs> to drink less. I hate to admit it because I'm having a good time here, et cetera. So yeah. where does someone start? Yeah. So look, I'm working on literally writing this out for my new book. So awesome. this is ex everything I'm thinking about every day. If we orient ourselves into the belief that the reason for the use, and I'm not talking about you went to a wedding and you had a glass of champagne because there's a toast. The reason for problematic use is underlying hooks, pain points, embedded traumas, memories of triggering experiences from your past, underlying negative beliefs about self, all those kinds of pieces. Anger, and dissatisfaction, frustration, lack of control, lack of community. life and previous. Exactly. Right, right. Then there's kind of three general principles, and I write about these in the abstinence myth already, but explore, accept, transform. So number one, we have to get curious, right? Here's the, the truth. These things work. The alcohol works. The blow, it works. The heroin works. Ecstasy whatever it is you're using, weed, it works. So the reason you use it is because it actually does resolve some of the problem short-term without actually causing any long-term improvement in those problems. But on a short-term basis, it actually is like a quick little medicine, right? It's like a cough suppressant yep. when you have a cold. So it is doing what you want it to do. Here's the problem that makes you far less aware of what is actually driving your behavior, especially over time. Right. I love actual stories because people can connect to stories. I had a woman sitting here yesterday who's almost like a mere example to a woman I uh, called Melissa in my original book. She came in, her husband and her uh, got in touch with me because they pulled an intervention on her and they were going to send her to rehab. They found me and they came in saying, look, she drinks a bottle, bottle and a half, two bottles of wine a night, also takes pills, has been smoking weed for years. She's tried to stop. It doesn't work. Every once in a while, she blacks out or she embarrasses herself, falls down at an event, whatever that is, right? She's tried to cut down. She can't cut down. She's got to stop drinking. That's how it came in. That's how it always comes in. They always come in because life got messed up, right? Shit hit the fan somehow. And it's like, oh, we got to stop. But everybody looks to the alcohol and the weed and whatever the thing is to stop. Right. Well, we met the other day and it just turns out magically that for the last 17 years, her relationship has been a nightmare. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying up until that point she didn't drink and didn't smoke weed, mm -hmm. but 17 years ago, husband lost his job, um, massive financial insecurity. She couldn't mm -hmm. talk about it because he was so insecure about it. They didn't want to tell anybody else. So they're living in secret, barely making it every month, like 
borrowing money from her parents to be able to still pay for their house. Three kids that they just had two years earlier, a ton of stress. Yeah. And so she started relying a little bit more on alcohol back then to just take the edge off. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, I tell this to everybody that I work with, drugs will always take back what they gave you, always. So Mm. if the alcohol gave you anxiety relief, it'll make you more anxious on the other side. Yes. In order to counter that, you have to drink more alcohol. So now we get caught in this loop that she did. But here's the beautiful thing about it. 16 Mm. years ago, her husband had no problem with the fact that she was drinking more. Because that meant she wasn't bitching and complaining at him that he didn't have a job and he needed to get his act together. Yeah. So 16 years ago, it was all good. Fast forward 16 years. Now it's two bottles of wine and it's causing right. problems. So I, what I said to her sitting here yesterday, I said, look, we'll start working. But once we get you stabilized, we got to get your husband in here. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't fix the relationship, then you're going to yeah. go back to it or you're going to go to something else instead. So I always look for the underlying reasons, the hooks for her financial insecurity, the emasculation of her husband, Mm -hmm. right? These things in the relationship, those became the real hooks. And in order to avoid the pain that was being caused by those, alcohol, weed, and pills did what they were supposed to do. So if somebody comes to me at Ignited, which is my online platform that I run for this, Mm -hmm. I give a very simple initial wheel of life assessment, 10 areas of life, your level of satisfaction. Yeah. Inevitably, there are at least two, maybe more areas of life where you're really, really struggling in. It could be finance and relationship. It could be um, purpose. It could be self-growth. It could be family. So family of origin is causing you a lot of pain and problems. Whatever it is, that's where we start off focusing. There literally isn't a slice on that wheel of life around drugs and alcohol. Right. Because everybody comes for that. So I don't even need to ask them. They're dissatisfied Mm -hmm. with where that's going. But mm-hmm. I want to understand why, what's going on in your life. And if we can start honing in on that, mm-hmm. we put in proactive tools and habits. How do we improve your relationship? How do we change or improve your work environment? And what ends up happening, it's not instantaneous. But two months, three months, six months in, people report, they're like, hey, I drink 70% less than I did three months ago. And we literally haven't talked about drinking in six right, months. Right, right. I had my first sober day. Or I had my first sober weekend. I had my first sober birthday, whatever that is. So that's the way I love working with people. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that I love about that way of working, it's not that I never have resistant clients, but you know how the story is in addiction that addicts and alcoholics don't really want to quit and they're really resistant to treatment. Mm-hmm. I don't have that problem. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'm actually working on what they want to work on. And I love doing it that way because who wants to work with clients who hate you <laughs> throughout the whole process? It's not fun. Yeah. Yeah. What I hear there makes perfect sense to me. And it aligns with what um, I often share with folks about my experience with depression, which is that what I learned and had to admit eventually to myself was that at least for me and what I see most often is it just like with addiction, depression is a symptom of not living well. It's an indicator of often very strong and powerful indicator that something is awry, that something about your life sucks, dude. And unfortunately, you've got to change that. And that is the only thing that's- You want to live a better life. Exactly. And that's the only thing that- You don't have to change it. But if you don't change it, nothing's going to get better. Yeah, exactly. Um, So let me ask you a question because you just brought it up around depression. And that is why I'm trying to expand people's concept now around addiction and, and broaden it. 
Um, again, so none of these things are really about the end symptom. Now, I want to be clear for the longest time. I don't know how you feel about this, but when I was in school, I went to UCLA for my PhD, right? Very biologically oriented school. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that there were different orientations because it's all that got pushed down my throat. But mm-hmm. sort of the the model of, well, the reason you have depression is because of your genetics. Yeah. And then eventually, finally, at least we got epigenetics. Biochemical very, imbalance. And yeah. it's all about the biochemical imbalance, right? And, and mm-hmm. what we forget sometimes is it's, it becomes a chicken or the egg kind of problem. Yeah. And I think people have to think about this holistically. So I always talk to people about biological, psychological, environmental, and spiritual components of the problem. Right. So biology is, yes, about genes and epigenetics, but it's also about what you eat. Absolutely, right. It's also about the sleep you get. Yeah. It's also about, are you getting enough sunlight, right? Um, it's also about movement. So yes. that has nothing to do with freaking genetics, but we get so stuck in biology about, I can't tell you how often I get asked a dumbass question um, well, do I have the addictive gene? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Like, there is no addictive gene. I know people still use that expression. It kind of drives me nuts. All the um, time. Well, and also just to say one thing, we also know that, of course, the biochemicals and hormones and everything else that's running through our body reacts to our behavior as much as it directs our behavior. That's again, what I mean about the chicken and the egg kind of problem. Yeah, ex- exactly. If yeah. you get crappy sleep, your cortisol levels are thrown off. And then we find that people when they're depressed, their cortisol levels are thrown off. But is that because right. their cortisol by itself, or is it because they're getting shitty sleep? Right. And, yeah. and I'm glad, I mean, Gabor Mate, we mentioned him before, um, Bessel van der Kolk. There, there are a bunch of people who, have at least pushed forward this uh, Bruce Lipton. I don't know if you're Bruce Lipton or not, but um, mm. another great guy to read uh, the biology of belief. Mm. I'm glad we're getting open to this idea that our behavior, our environment, and our biology all play a role, this interactive role. You cannot separate one from the other. Yeah. So yes, genetics are important, but they mean nothing without epigenetics. And epigenetics are all about environmental influence, which includes your psychological experience. And then you bring in the food that you eat and now you're done. Like you just have this cycle of biology, psychology, and environment, biology, psychology, and environment. And the environment is physical environment, right? Like all the way from BPAs and the plastic that, uh, that leaks into your water maybe or pollution environmental, but also mm-hmm. social environment. Yeah, absolutely. And right. so that's what, what I'm trying to explain to people in my new book is, Mm. whenever Occam's razor is this uh this the simplest answer is often the best yeah but it's this notion that i think we've oversold Mm. um and there are a lot of things in life that are just actually complex (laughs) yes and when you try to explain them in one sentence Mm -hmm. you do horrible injustice to the actual concept because it doesn't mean anything anymore right so when people ask me, like, is it biology or psychology yeah. around addiction and mental health? I go, that's a dumb question. That's like asking me if a cucumber is a vegetable or green. Yeah, it's yeah. both and it's neither. It's so much more than that. And something just occurred to me that our desperate search for attaching a definitive meaning to addiction or depression is a way of avoiding the real complexity of what's going on, which is that the way we live is causing most of these things. And we don't really want to admit that because it's overwhelming 
Right. And that's the other thing. It's like, well, Jesus, if it's all these things, then what can I do about it myself? Right. So true. <laughs> um, the conversation a lot of us forget about health in general and mental health is worst underlying cause for all these things is stress and inflammation. At the core, core level, most of us on this planet right now are under chronic stress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially yeah. in Western civilization. Yeah. Most people don't even know what it feels like to be well. That we, Most of us just don't know what that feels we like. Eat shit. We yeah. eat shit that is 85% chemical and our body doesn't recognize it as, as natural, which means it has to create antibodies and try to fight it, which creates inflammation. I wonder why there's so much more autoimmune disorder. Our yeah. body's attacking itself. And then we get into chronic stress and you look at stress, yeah. physical or psychological stress are, are processed very similarly. Cytokines, you get immune responses in the body. And so our body fights stress like an infection and it mm -hmm. fights foreign objects like the things we put in our body for food all the time as an right. infection. And mm -hmm. so we're in this constant form of immunostress in our lives. And then we wonder why we get sick all the times. And there's all these conditions and cancers and hypertension and stroke and diabetes in rate, at rates that we've never seen before. But you're so right. Think of what we would have to do to solve that. Yeah. We'd have to stop eating the way we eat, which means food production would have to slow down, which means everybody would have to go back to kind of basics and, and, and eat whole foods and 40 to 60 hour weeks of work, mm -hmm. graveyard shift, all those things would have to stop existing which means Amazon would have to go away, right? Like all <laughs> well, these things, all these things we rely on wouldn't be able to function anymore. So, right. So that's like the line of thinking that some folks get into where it's like, okay, well, if it's not that I'm an addict and I can't just fix that by stopping drinking, let's say that there's all these underlying causes of my stress and my dissatisfaction that I was trying to kind of self-medicate with by drinking or whatever else and then they get into this line of thinking where it's like oh my god well everything's so fucked up i'm never going to be able to fix that mm. right well that's not all that productive either because sure. wherever you think things are going i mean we're still here as individuals and there's lots that one can do to as you were saying explore accept transform what one of the things that reminds me of is something I learned along the way, which is that the view from the inside always seems normal. Yeah. By which I mean our current reality always seems real as fuck. You can adapt to anything. Well, right. But it, it doesn't seem that way because when you're inside this bubble of the present, it's like, well, that's how the world is. I'm depressed. I'm drinking a lot. Life sucks. I'm having a hard time. I, you, it's very, can be very hard to envision change. And then you go down the road a couple of years and man, I mean, all sorts of things can be different. You could be in a different relationship. You could have moved somewhere. You could have a different job. You could have changed your physical lifestyle. Maybe you stopped drinking or maybe you started using some other substances. Who knows? Lots of things change all the time. And that world, that normal seems just as normal. Right. The way I, I talk to all my clients about this is, um, and this is, this is something that takes people sometimes a lot of effort to get through the first time. But once you get through it once, you'll never think about your life the same way. And it, it speaks to what you're talking about. And that is we always see the world through our own eyes and our perspective. 
And if I can take a couple of minutes on this, I tell people like, imagine you finished a hike and it's this beautiful, beautiful hike in LA, maybe up and down um, through Runyon Canyon or something like that. But you're going up the hill and you're kind of in between the trees and you reach this point in the end and you're staring at LA. And it's magnificent and you see everything from Santa Monica all the way to downtown or something. And you imprint in your head this beautiful view that you had. And then three days later, maybe at a dinner, you're talking to somebody else. You tell them the story and you go, oh my God. Then I, at the end, I was standing on this hill and I, I saw LA. And it was these clouds over on the left and the sun was setting. Uh, and you could just tell where the ocean was and, uh, and the lights were starting to come on downtown. And you start describing the view as you saw it. And then you have somebody else at the table go, oh my God, I, I was at Runyon the other day too. And I did the same hike. But you know, some of the ways you just described the view are off. Let me remind you, you actually couldn't see the ocean because of the angle that you were at. And there were no lights anywhere. It was bright <laughs> and there were no lights anywhere. And yeah, I mean, I guess the clouds were on the left, but there were actually clouds everywhere. So it wasn't just on, and, and you guys start fighting about what the view looked like. <laughs> and you could fight about this for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But it just turns out that you were on one hilltop, they were on another hilltop, right. they were there at noon, and you were there at 7pm. And so right. the view is just different. Mm-hmm. And how many times have we spent fighting with other people about the right way of looking at something, mm-hmm. when it is equally as plausible that there are just multiple ways of looking at the thing? Yeah. And And what I try to explain to people, which I think is what you were getting at before, mm-hmm. is we change in life. And there's a good probability that 10 years from now, you will look at the world differently than you do right now. But here's what's crazy about it. Mm. When that shows up, you will have almost forgotten the view you had 10 years earlier. And you will now again believe that the way you look at things is real. Yeah. And if you can hold that concept in your head, and this is what I tell all my people, because when when I start seeing people, they're desperate, right? They're not in a good place. And I tell them, look, a big part of what we're going to work on is actually not on changing the world because that's hard. We're probably not doing that. We're going to change the way you relate to the world. Yeah. And if we can do that for you, and if you can work on that, you will see that you can be in almost exactly the same situation and have a completely different outlook on what's coming at you. And so I think I talked about this a little bit when we met at Metal. Um, One of the tools that I'm incredibly happy about having used in the last eight to 10 years, and I'm talking about it now in the book a little bit because it's not okay to talk about it 10 years ago. It's not really okay to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Is the use of, for instance, like psychedelic medicine. Because Mm -hmm. the best use for those is perspective shifting. Yeah. You can have one view on life. Take MDMA, which is one of the tools I use, or psilocybin or ketamine. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, 45 minutes later, your view on the world is different. And once that happens to you at least one time, right? Yeah, you come out of that experience going, oh, okay, I get it. There's not only one way to look at life. That's just it. Whether it's with powerful substances or with dramatic experiences, strong physical experiences can bring this about as well. The meta experience there that you just pointed to, which is not necessarily that, oh, okay, well, here's another way of being or seeing, but that there's not just one way of being or seeing. The thing is, when you're in that bubble, when you're inside of depression or chronic alcohol use or or other strong drugs, it's like, man, Right. We, you and I both know it's very hard to see the possibility 
of something outside of that bubble. Which is why people talk about having these spiritual awakenings and things of that yeah. nature. And it can absolutely happen. It happened to me without psychedelic medicines, but it happened to me because I got a SWAT team arresting me and I had to stare my life in the face and go, wait, everybody I know who's a drug dealer either ends up spending 7, 10, 15 years in prison, gets shot and either shot at and or killed. Yeah. Um, I've never seen anybody come out of this right. unscathed. <laughs> and yeah. I just got arrested. So this is the beginning of that journey. And I needed to make some really serious decisions. And um, that was my come to Jesus moment, right? I'm Jewish, but, you know, I guess Jesus was Jewish too. So um, that was my moment of, of saying like, oh, shit, I got to change. But I'll tell you, I've worked with people. And, and if you can help create those moments sometimes, yeah, hopefully you can save people from real rock bottoms. Because I always say to people, I was teetering on the edge, right? I was hanging on by a thread. If I would have screwed up that decision right. once... Right. And it would have turned out badly. I could have gotten 10 years instead of the one that I got. And then you and I would probably not be sitting here talking right now. Yeah. 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 I feel you. The transcendent, the moment of some sort of awakening. Right. Yes. And it, it can be super dramatic or it can be fairly subtle. And that's just a thread that runs through my entire experience. Mm. And this is why I'm writing a book about my experience. My experience was more subtle. And so I didn't go to the extremes of use and the moment of awakening, let's say, was pretty subtle. It didn't involve being arrested. Um, Good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had some scrapes here and there, um, but, you know, for me, it was running. Um, and it was not the Charlie Engel version of running across the Sahara or ultra running. Um, it was not taking myself to an extreme there either. It was the kind of running that just like any average middle-aged person can do starting, you know, run a couple miles. And after a couple of years, you can run four or five miles. And after a few years, you might find yourself running like six, seven, eight, that kind of distance on a regular basis. There's nothing extreme about that, right? That's a very everyday level of mysticism. Um, and yet that can be quite a dramatic difference. And it was for me. It was for me. Um, and Also, again, think about what we were talking about, right? You replaced it with something else. That's exactly right. And it can be so subtle. That's what's so beautiful about it, right? There, I think one of the other false stories is that this recovery thing has to be really, really hard. Yeah. Totally. I'm not saying it's always easy and I'm not saying there won't be difficult periods, but I tell people, look, I actually want to point you in the direction of joy. Totally. Yeah. This should feel good because this right now feels shitty. So we yeah. should be moving towards better. And, and this whole notion of we have to break people down to build them back up. I'm not a huge fan of that. No, 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 not at all. And I say the same thing. And as part of what I saw too, first of all, making steps, towards some direction that you've identified yourself i mean that feels good intrinsically feels good um and that's something that maybe a lot of us forget or kind of lose track of for a lot of people that i work with at least we've been told over and over and over that we can't that we don't yeah. have that in us a lot of the people yeah. i work with and and I, I went through that by the way so that's part of my story i don't share that part all that much but right around the age of 14 or so i kind of 
became a punk, like a lot of teenage boys, right? Yeah. In my family, part of what that meant was a lot of my parents yelling at me that I'm a loser, that I'm never going to be anything. Mm -hmm. And it was a big shift, by the way, because that was not the way anybody talked to me earlier. Yeah. But the way my parents handled it was you might as well drop out of school. You're not going to go anywhere. Go get a job somewhere and mm -hmm. just kind of. And honestly, that got drilled into my head after a little while. And I just yeah. kind of gave up on trying. Yeah. And I think a lot of people I work with, that starts even earlier, like three, four, five years old. They get used to being told they're, yeah, don't think too much of yourself. You're not really anything special. Yeah. And they believe it, which sucks because it gets back to that whole try to be normal, even though nobody wants to be normal. And they're told they're not even good enough to be normal. That's so interesting that you just brought that up. Literally, even the phrase, I can't. I was just writing about that this afternoon. And for me, it started about the same time, but in a different way. It wasn't that my parents were telling me, you're a bad kid. You can't because you're not capable or whatever. You're screwing things up. I haven't done quite enough therapy on this particular little thing to actually know the full answer yet. But I think really where that originated was from kind of feeling alone in the world, right? And so many of us do. We just don't have enough community and connection. And because for me that I can't was like, I can't by myself. Yeah. And that phrase got wired in mm. very, very deeply so that many, many years later, when it would come up for me, like, oh, well, it'd probably be good to drink less or to mm. like exercise more. The reaction from my subconscious would be like, uh, but I, I, I can't by myself. Mm. The thought that I have to do it alone was just overwhelming. Well, first of all, almost everybody I work with is initially so isolated. It's scary. So like the woman I was talking about before, where she's not talking to her husband, literally within the same house, married with kids, not talking to each other. I had a guy on one of my groups earlier today, fully isolated. Like the drug use is the only time he gets to connect to people because that's when he's getting high with his using buddies or whatever. So massive levels of isolation. And again, think about this. I don't remember who said this and it really upsets me because I want to be able to give the attribution, but we become who we're told we are as children. And that's a scary thought for some of us because, again, I came from a pretty wholesome house in terms of what I was told I am, but my parents' relationship was not good. They mm -hmm. used to scream at each other and then my dad left my mom and my mom had many, many conversations with me about what was going on there that definitely showed me behind the curtain in ways that I probably shouldn't have seen at the time. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of people go through this. It's nothing special that I went through, but again, you take a child who's pretty damn innocent and pure, and then we load them up with these expectations. And if we do the best job, some people only have slight insecurities <laughs> right, and notions right. about what they can and can't do. But mm -hmm. some people, man, I mean, it's scary sometimes to think about some of the stories I hear from the people I work with. That's why actually the Ignited program I run is called the Ignited Hero program, because mm -hmm. I tell people all the time, you're a hero for just making it here. 80%, 90% of the stories of people who come to me, I don't know that I would have made it. I don't know yeah. that I would have been functional enough to actually make it to the age of 40. Um, but mm -hmm. the work on the flip side is to get connected, is to yeah. start reflecting yourself in other people and starting to believe in yourself. And that can take people a couple of years before they start actually believing that they are worthy, that the messaging they got from their parents or their family members or their whatever neighborhood bully or whatever, 
when they were younger was actually not truth, but was just one of those perspectives that we were talking about earlier. And to say, oh, wait, there's a whole other way that I could live this life. Here's the beauty. When I've seen people make that shift, including myself and a lot of other people I've worked with, it's like this whole window to the world opens. One of the guys in our program recently was like, I haven't thought about the alcohol or what brought me in here in like two years. Like that's not, that's just not what I'm working on right now in my life. Yeah. And I think that's when you know you've won because that yeah. was never the problem in the first place. So when mm -hmm. people realize it and get to work on what really is meaningful to them, that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. So the frame that we started with around addiction is like you just said, it's almost like you don't really work on that directly. You work on the rest of the wheel of life, where the lumps in that and start to build, build better habits and those gradually displace the unhealthy habits. I mean, I call the company Ignited because the idea is this. You want to create a life that is so good, so yeah. purposeful, so fulfilling. You don't want to escape it. Right? That's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like that's how you got away from doing things that weren't good for you was putting in other things in life that made you feel better. And then I'm assuming there were many nights where you're like, well, I could drink tonight, but then I won't be able to run tomorrow morning and I want to run tomorrow morning. So I'll skip it. Not because drinking is wrong, but because I want to go running. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And there were other things as well. I want to go back to the first half of what you just said about a life that you don't want to escape. That's just it. I mean, I was kind of wired for escape from early on. And there's definitely something in the human psyche, right? That wants to escape. Look, man, I think it makes sense. We want the easy way out. Nobody wants hard work. <laughs> there are a lot of studies on this and I'll talk about this for just a second. Mm. Being able to delay rewards is connected to your learning and connected to your biology, right? And so some people have a harder time preventing themselves from going for the quick reward. And yeah. if you're one of those people, you're going to have to train yourself. I would have said that about myself before I went to jail, before I went to rehab. But here's the thing. When I got out of jail and my motivation was high to change my life, I went from a 2.9 GPA undergrad bachelor's UCLA student to a 4.0 graduate student. The learning was much harder. The reading was 10 times longer. And somehow magically, I became an amazing student. So yeah. is it really that my brain had a hard time doing hard things? Or is it just that I hadn't found my North Star? I hadn't found my motivating drive. And the moment that showed up, magically, I can be a 4.0 student. So their running is not by itself a fun activity. You make it a fun activity, giving it meaning, aligning it with your level of fitness, what you want to look like, the kind of people you get to hang out when you're running, whatever it means to you. And I think that's, again, going that back to that perspective piece. If anybody is listening right now who's struggling, mm. I just want you to realize there are aspects of your life you don't like. And there are two choices, well, the three choices you get, really. One, keep things the same and keep going down the same path. The other one is change the facts, switch jobs, move somewhere else. And the third one is change your perspective on what's happening. And if you can pick, you get to pick what you want to do. So if you really hate your job, you can leave. But if your job mm -hmm. is kind of a little bit stressful to you, what can you do to perspective shift? How can you look at things differently? And there's some magic that happens with perspective shifting. Even if you're stuck in the same place, look at the Dalai Lama, look at some people who can be in the middle of hell 
and somehow put a smile on their face and talk about peace and happiness. Yeah, yeah, totally. Thanks for that. Right on. Well, Adi, we're going to wrap here um, in just a second. I want to thank you for being with me today. It's been great to spend a little time with you. And um, just as a final quick question here, what's something that you have learned for yourself in the last six months or a year that has changed the way that you live? I don't know if my timeline is exactly on. Uh, it's probably been a couple of years, but one of the biggest shifts in my life recently has been the ability to move between abundance and scarcity as a mindset. So we talked about perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm always learning about new perspectives and new ways to adjust the way I look at the world. And um, I used to live in a pretty substantial scarcity mindset, which meant that I thought we live in a zero-sum world where if Mm -hmm. I get something, I have to take it away from somebody else, where there are limited resources and I have to fight everybody else for them. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of friends and some people who's that was exposed to who really started making me believe that we actually live in a world of abundance. Mm-hmm. And the moment you tune into that and you start not feeling like you have to hold on to everything you get mm-hmm. and you start releasing, maybe even giving mm-hmm. more, that magically somehow the universe responds and answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a religious man. I've gotten more spiritual in the last five to 10 years, but definitely not mm-hmm. religious. And so whether you call it the world, the universe, fate, God, whatever you want to call it, um, mm-hmm. I've had to learn that even in moments of financial stress or anxiety, my job is actually to lean into the trust and the comfort, still have to go do the work, still have to do what I need to do. I don't just sit back and expect it to happen. But I didn't realize I could shift my mindset from from scarcity to abundance in such a complete way. It's still something I'm working on, but that's been my biggest um, Mm. transformation recently. Mm, Sweet. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think that's a powerful lesson, perhaps especially for men, where we often come into adulthood feeling like we're all in competition with each other. Versus collaborate. Yeah, I think that's a great point. All right. Well, Adi Jaffe, real pleasure to have you on, man. Thanks again so much. I really appreciate your time. I wish you well and uh, see you again soon. Thank you so much, Bo, and I look forward to speaking again soon. My pleasure. Buddy, thank you so much for listening. If you did enjoy this conversation, please do take a moment to visit the episode page at bowendwelly.substack.com and click the little heart icon to show everyone else that you liked it. It's a very small thing to ask and it really helps other people find my content here on Substack. I appreciate you making that small gesture of appreciation. You'll also find the questions there that I posted at the bottom of the show notes, which you can read and consider commenting with your own thoughts on what we discussed in the episode. I'd love to hear from you. You can subscribe, recommend, share, and comment all right at the bottom of the page at bowendwelly.substack.com, where all of my writing and audio lives. 
Just a final reminder that anyone who becomes a paid subscriber to my Substack will be eligible to receive a copy of my book when it comes out for just the cost of shipping. And of course, you can always reach me by email. And of course, you can always reach me by email or find me on social media. All the info is there on the Substack page as well. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you tune in again soon.